previously on areas of agreement. People with guns and armed and with Confederate flags stormed into the Capitol and kind of looted it. The president's inflammatory rhetoric. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building. Caused this group of, as we said, violent extremists to, as we said, desecrate the Capitol. 40% of the electorate thinks that this election was stolen. That's, you cannot move forward with that. And I'm hearing from folks that are just like, I, I don't want to engage across the aisle. Uh, I just don't want to. I think peace building is a tough horse to ride because you have the responsibility of naming the problem and making sure that you're not losing too many people in the process of naming the problem. So I, I don't think we should say we're the peace building group, um, at least not with the communities we're trying to engage. Oftentimes I, I sense a kind of asymmetry of curiosity where it does seem, at least in my world, that liberals tend to be more interested in conservatives than vice versa. The more conservative among us might be more responsive to a message that is more or less toughen up and come to be. Of course, that's not, that's not exactly what we want to say, but we only get so far by using words like peace building and communicating across difference. We're trying to prevent organized violence and we're trying to advance positive peace, right? Where it's not just, okay, no one's taking up arms, but we have a society where there's justice for all. And if we're the only ones reaching out and we shouldn't have to be, so be it. Hey, it's Elia Powers. Listeners to this podcast can probably guess that the we in those clips refers to urban-rural action. In the first seven episodes, I followed the work of this organization that brings together people across geographic, political, and racial divides. In episode three, I spoke to members of the UR Action leadership team, who you just heard from in those clips. It was shortly after the January 6th insurrection. We talked about political violence, peace building, and we had a meta-conversation about how the organization should position itself. Feelings were still quite raw. We were all processing the January 6 events together, and a year later, we're still processing them. I wanted to do something here to mark the anniversary. This podcast is all about divisions, and January 6 has quite predictably become divisive. Urban Rural Action took part in an event called the National Day of Dialogue. Not the kind of dialogue that happens every day on social media, real, actual face-to-face dialogue. This Day of Dialogue is an initiative of the IDEOS Institute, an organization that's all about faith, empathy, and civic engagement. A lot of partner organizations help make this event happen, including UR Action, Listen First Project, Freedom Forum, and Bridge Alliance, just to name a few. The centerpiece of the event was the premiere of a film called Dialogue Lab America, from directors Jonathan Pickett and Brian Laws. The filmmakers brought together 12 Americans from across the country and from a range of backgrounds as an experiment of sorts. To see if dialogue really works. To see if having these hard conversations can actually help not only to heal the divisions, but actually to heal a nation. That's IDEOS Institute President and CEO Christy Vines. You can watch the whole thing on the IDEOS Institute's website. 
I wanted to share with you a few highlights from the film, along with commentary from one of its directors, a few of the participants, and several others to give you a taste of what the National Day of Dialogue was all about. Studies have found that we are more divided in America today than at any point since the Civil War. What frustrates you about America right now? That no one understands one another. I agree. A lack of compassion that I see. I think it's fear and ignorance. The way that we treat those with whom we disagree says everything about who we are. I know it's supposed to be like, America's all oh, for equality, we're all the same, but we're really not. You know, you're, you're treated differently depending on your status, depending on your race, depending on your looks. I think with the right education, a solid family structure, anybody can achieve anything in America. I, I believe in a social safety net because I also believe ultimately that I benefit. My security is taken care of not just by cops who stop bad people, but by social benefits that provide food to people who then don't have to go out and rob others in order to eat. 25 years I did this, and some people really who are in need, I mean, you feel compassion for them, but other people that just milk the system for all it's worth, I don't think it's right. I truly value having conversations with people about politics, and I've felt in the last couple of years you just can't have those conversations as freely as, you know, we've been able to just because of how polarized we've all become. By having thousands of conversations where we demystify and build connection with the other, we not only start to heal our divisions, but in many cases, we find action steps that we can take. That we can build a new foundation of trust and grace upon which shared humanity is recognized. Violence is avoided. Division doesn't sell. Common challenges are solved and differences make our democracy and our society healthy robust, and resilient. Credit to the IDEOS Institute and Listen First for those clips. What you didn't hear, because there are no recordings to play, were two interactive sessions hosted by Urban Rural Action and the organization Lead for America. These sessions weren't recorded in part because of the sensitivity of the topics we discussed. I took part in two insightful conversations about political violence. It was a timely topic for obvious reasons. We took part in a focus group of sorts. Except instead of set roles, we all took turns asking and answering questions. We used the ABC technique that I covered in detail in episode 3 to facilitate constructive dialogue about political violence. Afterward, I talked online with a few of the people who made the event happen. Hi, Joe Bubman, Executive Director of Urban Rural Action. And I am Logan Grubb, and I'm a program director with Urban Rural Action. Hi, I'm Gillen Martin. Um, I'm Lead for America's alumni manager. I was also one of our first class of fellows. Um, Lead for America is a fairly recent nonprofit that recruits and trains young leaders and places them in public service in um, place-based nonprofits or city, county, or tribal governments in their hometown regions or communities. Hi, my name is Rupert Soka. I'm a Lead for Minnesota fellow. I wanted to know what they learned from the two days of dialogue and how they perceived the risks of political violence. I started off with a personal question. How's everyone feeling on the one-year anniversary of January 6th? Here's Joe. 
I am troubled by the direction of our country one year after January 6, 2021. Planning for these events was helpful because it distracted me from thinking about a national environment that we seemingly have little ability to impact and instead focused my energy on what we can do as community members across this country. After having, even as a moderator, been able to facilitate sessions, um, I do think I felt encouraged. I think maybe going into the, the two days, especially the National Day of Dialogue, I was wary, but I do think that coming out of the sessions that we had, I did have something to be hopeful for. I feel like I'm sort of in an emotional holding pattern of wait and see about a year out because a lot of the things we're watching on a national level to address January 6th still haven't come to fruition or are still generally in the works. Initially, about a year ago this week, it hit me really hard. I had been an intern in a house office building, so I was at my work in my local government on a two-monitor setup trying to work while simultaneously watching people storm the building that I had held mass respect for as an intern and just as an American generally. So I was sort of surprised by my lack of emotion this week um, and a bit disheartened just in the lack of ability we have to change things from like the large-scale national causes that led to January 6th to um, the things that still contribute to that political violence and division. It feels hard to affect, but um, I was similarly really invigorated by the conversations the last two days and inspired to think about what we can continue to do on smaller scales to affect change in our communities. I think it was hard for me to grasp what was happening last year, January 6th, and even this year, it's still a difficult thing to process mentally. Now having conversations and um, being a part of other organizations that are wanting to bridge that and make connections with uh, a diverse group of uh, Americans, it's very heartwarming and it, it gives me a lot more faith. Of all the topics that could have been discussed, I'm wondering... Why did you want these conversations to focus on political violence? In order to prevent another January 6th from occurring, and January 6th is the most obvious, blatant manifestation of political violence in our country in recent history, in order to prevent that from happening again, we need to talk about political violence specifically, um, not just our democracy more broadly. And... As an organization speaking for your action, part of our culture is to lean into tough conversations and to apply a mindset of curiosity about different perspectives and to engage with those different perspectives, even if we don't agree. One of the things you have to do when you want to tackle a problem is to define the problem. And I think that as we see that, that our democracy, especially in America, is in flux, that one of the problems that is, that is facing it is political violence. And so I think being able to name that first um, provides you with the groundwork to be able to have a productive conversation on how you're going to find solutions to that. As Logan said, identifying and naming the problem is important. In my small group conversations, we struggled with how to define political violence. I mean, sure, you know it when you see it, and January 6th was textbook political violence. Violence against police officers, against the Capitol, against democracy. But that's not the only kind of political violence. I wanted to hear how everyone on the call defined the term. Joe says political violence is, in his words, the willingness to use force to achieve political goals. 
In other words, carrying out harm against people to impact policy or politics. January 6th is an illustration or an example of that, but it's not the only example of political violence in our country. I think um, issuing threats against other people because of their beliefs, killing law enforcement because you oppose policies, I think is also an example of political violence. I do think, in my opinion, that it can extend beyond just the physical violence. I mean, I think that if there are intimidation tactics or like conscious misinformation campaigns that I think that something that is detracting from a free and fair political process. My group got into a really interesting conversation about how we feel about political violence when it occurs in the context of democracy, an existing democracy, or how we feel about violence when it occurs in service of creating a democracy, perhaps. So for example, a revolution against like an authoritarian dictator versus in this situation, in the situation of January 6th, and in our country, in one of you know, the most established democracies in the world. The problem statement we were all given in small groups read, political violence is dangerous to U.S. democracy. But I was curious, why not just name January 6th in that statement? Lay it all out there. Joe said many people would already be thinking about January 6th since these conversations were happening on the anniversary. And we also wanted to intentionally create space for people who are concerned about political violence, including forms of political violence that are not just about January 6th. And because we are committed to bringing together people with lots of different perspectives and lived experiences, we thought it was important to err on the side of breadth and a variety of different interpretations of political violence Gillen shared a personal experience about political violence, which was the January 6th attack last year. Political violence also happens at the local level. One of the participants in the program was a city commissioner in Enid, Oklahoma, a city of about 50,000. He was featured in the New York Times just a week ago. They on the city commission were imposing a mask mandate. There were a lot of opponents of that mask mandate and he received threats against his family as a result of promoting that mask mandate. That too is a manifestation of political violence. And political violence, if you look at polling, is becoming more acceptable. A new CBS News poll finds that day still has a lingering effect on the national psyche. 68% think it's a sign of more violence to come, and two-thirds think democracy itself is threatened. Uh, and this was a poll that came from the Washington Post and University of Maryland. It asked, is it ever justified for citizens to take violent action against the government? 34% said yes. According to that second poll, 40% of Republicans and 41% of independents say violence against the government is sometimes justified, compared with 23% of Democrats. Acceptance of violence was higher among men, young adults, and white Americans. I asked everyone what they made of these statistics, particularly that 34% number that made headlines. It was terrifying. When you read a headline like that, it's important to then actually read the context of the article. Um, and to see, you know, what is the demographic that, that was um, interviewed or, or surveyed 
Um, and even then, where is the stratification within the, the survey itself? But nevertheless, I mean, to read, to read a statistic that says that one in three of potentially people that you live around in your neighborhood, you know, might think that, that violence against the government is okay, um, that's, that's pretty terrifying. And it also leads me to think that what level of trust do Americans have on government as a whole um, in order to resort to violence to make change? Um, is there something else that can be done to, I don't know, if reducing that statistic or um, altering others' mindset? I agree that if you're talking about violence in our country against our government as it stands in a democracy, it's terrifying. But I think in the broader scheme of things, internationally and historically, violence against governments has oftentimes been held up as heroic if they're autocratic, if they're um, really oppressive regimes. So it's just about the context in which political violence is occurring within, and I'd have to know whether or not the question was asking violence against our government in these times. I think there's a big difference between do you think violence is justified to overturn the results of the 2020 election and restore President Trump to office versus can you ever imagine the use of violence as being necessary or justified to affect change? So that's one. Uh, second, I think that while in our programming, we probably are not going to impact people who stormed the Capitol and think that that was a good thing to do, or even people who look back on January 6th and say that was a good thing to do. But I do think there's an opportunity to influence people who maybe answered that poll question in the affirmative. The obvious next question is, well, why do they feel like political violence might be necessary? It might be because of misinformation and disinformation. It might be because they're isolated and lonely. It might be because they don't feel heard. And if we can deepen our analysis of what drives people to support political violence, it gives us an opportunity to potentially carry out interventions to address those causes and therefore change the dynamic so that in our country, political violence is widely rejected as a means of affecting change. So the question is, to affect change, do you need to engage with people who believe violence is sometimes acceptable? Does constructive dialogue about political violence matter less? if people in that 34% are not involved in conversations? There is a general agreement that yes, everyone has to be brought into the fold. Here's Ruva and Gillen. I would wholeheartedly agree that having um, them a part of the conversation um, who might have a little bit more of a either extreme or different um, understanding as you is important because I'm not necessarily saying that if you want to change their views, they then that's the only reason why. But I would think that you have to kind of meet in the middle um, and try and see it from their point of view to try and figure out what avenue is best to take to at least come to a more compromised conclusion. You're not coming into the conversation um, with people whose views differ from you trying to change their minds or trying to get them on your page necessarily. It's really coming in with genuine curiosity and trying to understand where they're coming from. Maybe they've tried peaceful ways and seen those peaceful ways not come to fruition. Maybe they've written their congressman, maybe they've called, maybe they've not heard back, maybe they've gotten a canned response. So seeing all of these ways that we're supposed to interact with our society and affect change peacefully um, not come to fruition could be a huge cause there. Okay, let's say that you had all these people together at a table, including people in this 34% group. 
What questions could you ask that would be the most clarifying? My biggest question is just, do you think that our American democracy is currently operating democratically? My follow-up question to that would be, if no, what avenues have you taken to make your opinions heard that are not violent? How do you define political violence? What are the causes of political violence across different systems? And what are possible solutions? And I think that there's real value in engaging people who potentially support political violence in those conversations. In my earlier career doing international peacebuilding work for Mercy Corps, one of the big insights from the agency talking to people who had joined armed groups was the discrepancy or the disconnect between how people in those groups would talk about why they had joined versus why those of us not in those groups would speculate about why they had joined. The speculation was, oh, they are unemployed and they're poor, and so therefore they're joining these groups because they have nothing else to do. When we talked to people in those groups in Somalia, Colombia, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, the answer was they were angry. They felt like they had experienced injustice. They had been unjustly treated. They had been marginalized. They had been abused by security forces. They wanted connection with other people. Maybe their friends had joined these armed groups. And so I, I think that the questions we asked were good. And it's not just those who reject political violence who should be trying to answer them. It's also people who are thinking about political violence as a solution or who maybe support political violence who should be sharing why they think they might resort to that as an approach for affecting change. So I'm curious then, what were all of your biggest takeaways from the two days of conversations that we just had? My biggest takeaway was just how much the causes of political violence and the effects of political violence are cyclical. If um, political violence is occurring in part because people are um, losing faith in the authenticity of government or authority of government in the media, then those are also the tools in which we collectively communicate as societies and solve our problems. So the ways that we would hopefully solve that lack of trust or reinstill authority there become more difficult when authority is lost. So, you know, just people are feeling unheard and that's why this is happening. And then there's breakdown of the processes that are in place to allow people to feel heard and for them to affect action. I thought it was interesting how much the causes and effects that were identified um, were often shared by people regardless of generation, um, ideology. Um, obviously, the interpretation might be different. The most interesting part about that is that if people have a shared worry about a cause of, of political violence, if we can all say agree, okay, that there is a certain level of disenfranchisement that people are feeling, regardless, red, blue, whatever. Okay, we have this, this shared misapprehension. How do we move forward from there? And I think that was one of the few things that, that I did you know, have as this like glimmer of hope. One takeaway that I hadn't thought much about was relating to the cause of social media echo chambers and the possible solution discussed in my group of sort of moderated Facebook groups where people need to share credible sources to support the perspectives that they are introducing into that Facebook group conversation. And what I appreciated about that solution from 
a participant was also the idea that the effort to engage in a constructive way with credible sources fostered connections within that group in addition to fostering a better conversation on political issues. My last question I asked is what everyone planned to do based on the information they learned from these conversations. Logan said he'll make an effort to read entire articles online before forming an opinion and sharing them. Gillen said she'll subscribe to and read local news outlets. Ruva said she wants to challenge herself to go outside her comfort zone and have conversations with people who don't share her beliefs. Because as a person who does not like confrontation that much, it is very difficult for me to initiate that conversation and try and see it from the other person's point of view. Ruva says if you make assumptions about how those conversations will go, you'll most likely be wrong about the outcome. By approaching them with an open mind, you'll just learn so much more and build stronger relationships uh, doing so. Urban Rural Action is partnering with Lead for America on a 15-month Uniting for Democracy program starting in March. People involved in that program will work across divides at the local level to analyze problems, including, but not limited to, political violence. I'll have more episodes coming up this spring. Thanks for listening.